three, two, one, let's go. We need Julian Assange. One thing I want to say to you today is, it is not only that he is the victim of torture, it is not only that his life is at stake, it is not only that we want to save him from a dreadful injustice, we also want to save him because the world needs Julian Assange as a symbol and fighter for liberty. Okay, that, uh, of course, is Craig Murray, who I spent uh, five uh, wonderful nights in London with uh, at the uh, Belmorsh um, courtroom uh, in the preliminary, or the first half of the uh, persecution, the extradition uh, trial of Julian Assange. Uh, some wonderful people were there, and uh, I really want a, a shout out to all of the demonstrators uh, all of those grunts out there, because at heart, that's what I am. I'm a grunt. This is Randy Credico. I am uh, in the studios of nycpodcastings.com, nycpodcasting.com, here uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, it's a wonderful place, nycpodcasting.com. It's uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. This is our 10th one this year in collaboration with Covert Action Magazine, and now with uh, Sarah Kunstler is uh, part of this and, of course, uh, kind of co-produced by my good friends at Anonymous Scandinavia. They do a lot of, uh, of the technical work for this show. And Frank McKay, who is the wonderful uh, producer of this show and engineer. At any rate, we have a very big, tight show today. And we're going to try to get out of here early, but we never do because we have so many good guests Ben Norton will be here. He's the co-host, but he's running just a few minutes late. So we're going to go ahead and uh, um, just kind of move it along here. I have Rebecca uh, Vincent from the uh, wonderful group called uh, Reporters Without Borders. We have um, one of uh, the witnesses in the Assange trial um, coming up, and that is Robert Boyle, the attorney. And we have uh, Jessica Radak, the great, 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 um, wonderful uh, uh, whistleblower attorney and a whistleblower herself. So I think that kind of covers it. Uh, but we're going to go to a quick break and come back with my hero, man. Uh, we're going to go to a quick break, a little musical break, and come right back with the um, indefatigable and brilliant and man of utmost integrity, the great um, Thomas Drake. We'll be right back in just a minute. There's a man who leads a life of danger To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger With every move he makes, another chance he takes Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow 
faces that you find A pretty face can hide an evil mind Oh, be careful what you say Or you give yourself away Odds are you won't live to see tomorrow That's Johnny Rivers from the 60s, Secret Agent Man. I got to see him at my father's nightclub in uh, Southern California many times. At any rate, you know, I'm always a little anxious when I uh, have the opportunity to uh, interview uh, Thomas Drake. Uh, Thomas Drake, first time I interviewed him was three years ago at the very last, the very last installment of the first season of this show, Assange Countdown to Freedom. And it was a recommendation by Julian Assange. Can you get Thomas Drake? Uh, and I did. I got Thomas Drake and John Pilger. We closed it with them. And this is that was the 10th show. And this is the 10th show here. So it's kind of a coincidence. Uh, and uh, Assange says, Thomas Drake is gold. He is gold. So he would recommend his mother, uh, Pamela Anderson. He recommended a lot of the people, Renata Avila. Uh, and he said, get Thomas Drake because he is gold. And he is gold. Uh, I mean, look, if I were to go through his resume right now, I, I, I'd be here for the whole two hours. Thomas Drake is a uh, former uh, senior uh, uh, guy at the NSA uh, and uh, executive at the NSA. He's a whistleblower. He's a recipient of many awards, Ron Ridenour Award uh, for Truth Telling, and of course, the prestigious Sam Adams Award. And I just got to see him a couple of weeks ago, and I just love this guy. Tom, thank you for uh, taking the time out. Or thanks for having me return to your show. Well, you're always welcome here, Tom, uh, but I know you're, you, you're a busy man. And um, I, I, uh, we spoke the other day, uh, a couple of days ago, about, uh, about the trial uh, that I just went to. And you, you seem to know I was up there in the gallery watching it all right, the whole time. I was there paying attention. And I'm talking to you. You seemed to know more about it than I did. So you pretty much stayed apprised of it. What was... Your your overview of that first phase of this extradition hearing. Uh, that it's a show extradition hearing? Yes. You know, it's sort of the prelude to a show trial. If, in fact, he were ever extradited, I know there's multiple levels of appeal. Uh, they could go on for a while, um, given that he's not only a non-U.S. citizen, uh, but also within the European uh, community, uh, not just, you know, the U.K. So, um we're a long, long ways away from him being literally extradited uh, or snatched away from the U.K. and placed into the hands of the United States. The other thing I was very aware of, you know, you're talking about the Crown Prosecution Service. They're, de- they're definitely a foil for the U.S. Well, yeah. So, explain explain uh, they're that. They're operating on behalf of the, of the U.S. Justice Department. Right, right. Well, I saw those guys in action. They were sitting, there were three guys there at all times sitting behind um, the uh, Crown Prosecutor Services. And uh, they were floating around. The young guys, it looked like they just got, uh, they, they left the, the, the windows from, uh, from the Sears and Rohrbach or, uh, <laughs> or from uh, J.C. Penney. They were dressed in, you know, as if they were expecting to flood three inches above uh, their, their shoes, you know, four inches maybe. But uh, it looked pretty square. Uh, so, 
So uh, you're looking at this thing as a show trial. What, what do you, can you expand on that about uh, it being a show trial or them working for the it's U.S. A, government? It's, it's a setup. It's a frame. It doesn't really matter what the truth is. And I know the defense made very powerful arguments that this was really a political prosecution, which means you can't actually be extradited for political, uh, you know, if you're actually being politically prosecuted or for political reasons being extradited to another country. In this case, in this case under the U.S.-U.K. extradition treaty, that there are actually constraints. But they're trying to ignore all that by throwing in all this other stuff. I mean, we're talking, this is 10 years now, okay, 10 years, and it has to do, no matter what else you think of Julian, right, and I know there are people who take exception to him personally, that's all part of the character assassination, I know exactly what that feels like, you're made into a cardboard cutout, the bottom line is, this is an un, this could set a, an extraordinarily dangerous precedent of literally turning any media outlet into an enemy of the state at the whim of the state, meaning the U.S. could, in fact, haul any other publisher in, into uh, the arms of the U.S. injustice system, even if they're a foreign national, because they were, quote-unquote, publishing information, even if they weren't the actual source for it, publishing information that exposed wrongdoing, exposed violations of the law, you know, crimes against humanity, including war crimes, um, and in this case, simply uh, the machinations and the mendacity of the U.S. Empire writ large. I mean, this reminds me of Star Wars Episode Five. You know, if the, the Empire strikes back, you might as well call this as the national security state uh, striking back. Um, and they don't take too kindly to this. So what else was in the dock alongside Julian? This, is, this is, I think, is a critical question to, to answer for, for your listeners. He wasn't the only one inside the dock besides that security officer. What else was also in the dock in a cage is what does it mean to have a free press and what does it mean to exercise your freedom of expression and speech and opinion? Right. That's what's also in the dock, to use that phrase. So you think this is a this is a very dangerous precedent. The fact that they're using the Espionage Act, uh, how does it parallel with you? Went I mean, how does it parallel with your experience uh, with the Espionage Act? Well, <laughs> this is where it's very very parallel because I became a whistleblower, and in the end, I touched the third rail. I did go to the press. I went to a reporter for the Baltimore Sun in the United States. And they attempted to turn the reporter, they already had turned me into an enemy of the state, but they attempted to turn the reporter, in my case, into a material support accessory to a crime. They actually attempted to say, they said it, but they were trying to pin it on the reporter that the reporter was the only eyewitness to my crime. And then they even threatened to haul the reporter into the courtroom as a hostile witness. Now, the judge, to his credit, would have nothing to do with it because he knew that that would open up, given I was a signature case, signature case under Obama, that this would open up a huge can of worms. But what they did do, the government, in terms of charging me with the Espionage Act, is that I, that by disclosing what they alleged were state secrets 
to a reporter that was published in the in the paper of record for the area that it was worse than a spy, and if they had another charge that they could actually indict me with, they would have done that. So why was it worse than a spy? Because if you're actually giving up secrets to a spy, that's all done in secret. It doesn't show up on the front pages of a newspaper. So what I did was worse than a spy, because not only did the spy see what I disclosed, but also everybody else. So that made it worse than a spy. Look, they consider Assange a mortal threat to national security. They're treating him as an existential enemy of the state, a non-state hostile intelligence actor. They want to heap all the sins of the state on top of him as a scapegoat. And so he's now become the lightning rod for the United States for the prosecution of the press. Yeah. And remember, you have to remember, Trump has literally declared the press the enemy of the people. Right, right. We, we are talking. So go ahead, Tom. Go, Tom. I'm so sorry. it's bad enough to criminalize sources. It's bad enough to go after a reporter. But now, Trump, the Trump administration, and I want to emphasize, it's the Trump administration, is now taking all, all the things that are handed down from Bush to Obama, now to Trump. They're taking it to the next level and going after a publisher. We are talking with Thomas Drake, Thomas Drake, uh, former uh, executive at the NSA, a whistleblower. We are joined now uh, by um, my guest co-host uh, from the Gray Zone News, and that is award-winning journalist uh, Ben Norton. Ben, uh, you have some questions for Tom. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, Tom, can you talk maybe, one of the things that interests me is the role of U.S. intelligence agencies in this, because I was talking with Randy earlier about the role of the Spanish cybersecurity company uh, that was hired on behalf of originally the Ecuadorian embassy, but also was secretly working with the CIA to spy on Assange 24-7. So I'm wondering, you know, given your past experience in the NSA and potentially what you might know about other intelligence agencies, how much do you think of this campaign against Assange and WikiLeaks is also being directed by U.S. intelligence agencies, which have a history of going after journalists and publishers. Right. Well, especially if it's if they're foreign nationals. Okay. I mean, you have other quote unquote protections that not not necessarily protections, at least the veneer protection if you're a U.S. person. But in the case of Assange, he's not. He is a foreign national when viewed from the perspective of the United States uh, justice system. And so the use of, uh, of a national instrument, an um, intelligence uh, agency, is a national instrument of, of foreign policy. Uh, you're going to use it to support. Um, and it's, the temptations are enormous. It's like if there's a chance that we can actually spy on him, hey, why not? It doesn't matter that it's sovereign territory. It doesn't matter that there's diplomatic you know, immunity. It doesn't matter that he was actually given asylum, okay? It doesn't matter. And yeah. so the, with the change of head of state, right, they had an opening a couple years ago, and so they took full advantage of it. And uh, there was no question in my mind, I don't have any proof. I'm not in that loop anymore, right? But it's pretty clear uh, that from just public reporting and just a casual reading between the lines, that any of the information that they acquired spying in such an unprecedented manner inside of the, of the embassy of, of, of a sovereign country, uh, in particular in this case, um, targeted on Assange, that it would be shared. 
So yeah. it's a cutout. They're basically using it as a cutout. The cutout is very convenient because they, they can have plausible deniability, as they call it in the business that I used to work in, and, and say, oh, hey, well, and then it gets, it gets routed through ver- various means, um, and they can use that as, uh, for parallel construction. So in essence, they can hide that intelligence. Obviously, they can't use that um, in an actual prosecution, but they can certainly leverage it as a frame. Yeah, absolutely. One of the issues I wanted to discuss with with you, Tom, and also with Randy is the scandal that I think hasn't gotten enough attention, and that involves the this Spanish company, which is known as it's called Undercover Global. And we reported on this a few times at the Gray Zone, and there has been some excellent reporting actually by the Spanish newspaper El País, which showed that the man who founded this cybersecurity company, Undercover Global, his name is David Morales. And he is a former intelligence officer who was working in the Spanish military. And he also was contracted with Sheldon Adelson. So this story keeps going deeper and deeper. Of course, Sheldon Adelson is a major right-wing billionaire who is a key funder of Donald Trump's campaign. He's also a huge supporter of Israel. It's very close to Benjamin Netanyahu, helps fund the kind of far-right Likud forces. And according to these reports... Uh, Sheldon Adelson hired this company, Undercover Global, originally to be security on his yacht and then also told David Morales, he said, we also have this deal in the works with the CIA and we'll give you a bunch of extra money if you also give the intelligence that you have from inside Ecuador, the Ecuadorian embassy in London to the CIA. And so the CIA was spying on Assange 24 hours per day, seven days per week in all parts of the embassy, including the women's bathroom, because Assange and his attorneys, they figured that they were probably being spied on, especially when the new president of Ecuador came in, Lenin Moreno. So they decided to go have meetings in the women's bathroom, but they were still being surveilled. So I, I think this I mean, there's even more we could talk about there. I actually know some more scandalous information, but it's... I'm not surprised at all, just given how the U.S. has painted Assange, right? So not only the temptation to do so, but why not, right? And if you're a former intelligence, hey, you're, you, you can be turn yourself into uh, you know, a privatized mercenary uh, working on behalf of you know, a well-paid, you know, a, in this case, someone that's very well-heeled that's going to pay you a lot of money. So, hey... Yeah. They'll do it. Yeah. Right? Well, let me tell you, I was one. Did you know that? I was told by one of his attorneys that there's video. Now, just a comic like me, or a, a comedian like me, there's some video. They thought it was like the only like comic relief of me bringing in a bottle. This is when I was drinking three years ago. Um, I brought in a bottle uh, as a welcoming gift to Assange. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to bring flowers in. And it was a bottle of... Um, bullet, bullet rye or something like that. So that's oh, it's got bullet in it. Yes. Material support for terrorism, right? So that 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 was on video, and then uh, also in the video was me falling asleep in the conference room after having a couple of shots. So they got that. I mean, that's kind of compromising, you know. It's like it's so weird uh, to to have video of myself, but that's bad. That's that's bad enough on a personal level, but everybody else, the lawyers and the journalists, I mean. I mean, how doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the laws are. It doesn't matter what national sovereignty is. It doesn't matter what rights he has as an asylee. 
um, under international uh, law in terms of asylum. It doesn't matter. It's just what they can get away with. I mean, that's, you know, that, it doesn't matter. I mean, this, I can be quite cynical about this. None of it surprises me. I, look, I know what it's like to be a target. I know what it's like to be surveilled of, around the clock. I know what it's like both electronic and physical. I mean, in his case, right, wow, I mean, he's actually inside a very, very small set of rooms, um, has very little movement, and so they know exactly where he is at all times. They also knew exactly where I was at pretty much all times, right? So, uh, but for him, it's been going, for me, it was, you know, four plus years. For him, you're, you're talking, you know, seven years. Uh, and now he's in a maximum security prison in Belmarsh. Yeah. Basically a decade at this point. Yeah, it's a decade. I mean, it's Yeah, like, it's ultimately 10 years of no freedom, right? And and, for, and how long are we looking at this? I mean, right now, they'll stretch this out. It, even if even if he, they decide not to deport him or not to extradite him, they, they'll still get what they want. They got him shut up. They have for the last couple of years since Linda Moreno came in and for the next maybe three years. And, and so they've done their job. Why is he such a threat to these people that they'll put all of their resources into mummifying him? It should tell you, I, I, I've said this before, I'll say it in a different way, similar to what happened to me. The degree to which that a national security state or a government will come after you with all those powers. Remember, they hold real power. I mean, Assange, you know, the power of the pen, right? But it's very difficult, even with the power of the pen, when you have the power of the state actually coming after you. Oof. And so it's inversely, the degree to which they've come after him, like they did with me as a whistleblower, ultimately disclosing government violation, law and wrongdoing, up to and including the president of the United States of America, uh, during the time in which I was blowing the whistle and exposing the crimes committed by the state, it's inversely proportional to how many bricks they're going to pile on top of you. It should tell you that the truth of what was published through WikiLeaks with Julian Assange as the publisher for WikiLeaks and the chief at the time, you know, chief editor, it should tell you how accurate and truthful those disclosures were. Yes, absolutely. Now, Tom, so I want if, yeah, if he was just reporting local news, he would, he wouldn't have, he, this wouldn't have happened. Right. But, but wait, Tom, I'm saying, look, if, if, they are, if they have nothing to hide, if they just come out, if, you know, they could put Assange out of business by just not doing bad things, I suppose, right? <laughs> All they have to do is stop. Yeah, but... <laughs> Why don't they stop the war, stop the torture, stop the uh, manipulation, all of that? Well, because that's how you maintain the largest empire in history. Right. You have to do it those bad things. <laughs> yes. This is why I cut through a lot of people who attempt to give, like, somehow the U.S. is an exceptional empire. History does not give the U.S. a get-out-of-history free card, okay? <laughs> Let's be clear. That's great. That's great. Tom, Tom, I got to tell you, um, in, the, sure. in the next 10 minutes, I, I just want to go through your ordeal. Uh, sure. A lot of people don't know it because you know what he, yeah. if something were to happen, if he were to be extradited. Tell us about what happened to you and how you were able to get out of it. Well, my first in job was 9-11. And Pandora's box, I'm inside the box, it opens up, and I'm seeing all these Furies escape. So, yeah. And the, the, at the highest levels of the government, a very, very super secret program was launched uh, to turn the United States into the equivalent of, of a foreign nation for blank electronic surveillance, right? Okay. 
9-11 intelligence failures were covered up. Information that could have prevented or blunted or blocked or even stopped 9-11 were buried. Um, and then massive fraud, waste, and abuse. And so I could not remain silent. If I, if I had remained silent, then I would be an accessory to a crime by virtue of my silence. I was not going to see the Constitution of the United States subverted. And I took an oath to support and defend it. So now I'm finding myself defending the Constitution against my own government. That went on for a number of years. I was a material witness in a number of critical uh, investigations regarding the NSA's role in 9-11, in the failure, Department of Defense, and others. And so Bush opened up, in two, in this, and I even blew the whistle with, with the director of NSA after Hayden. It was Keith Alexander in November 2005. Then the New York Times published this extraordinary blockbuster article. It was a true revelation, this super state secret that had been kept hidden for so long, four-plus years, revealing for the first time the existence of the so-called warrantless wiretapping program. I knew... The government would think I was a source. I knew there would be a national security investigation. I knew because so few, people, so few people knew about that that I would become a target. And sure enough, in the end, about a dozen of us were directly targeted. I, ultimately, I became the target. The target. Wow. And so they uh, – but Bush didn't actually indict me. So um, – but they certainly threatened to do so, right? And I ended up having the FBI raid me uh, under Bush. Um, I ended up having – it was basically a forced resignation from the National Security Agency, and I was facing, at one point, the rest of my life in prison. That was the direct threat. And then they said, if you don't cooperate, it's going to be 400 months. Now we get to Obama. Obama decided – because he took personal umbrage, right? I think he felt and was exposed to being weak in national security. So not only did he open up new leak investigations, he went back to Bush to see the ones that had not been brought forward under, under an indictment, and, he, and I was one of them. Wow. And so I became the signature case. And so uh, I was secretly charged in 2010 in March. In April, I was very, very publicly charged under the Espionage Act, um, a, a, a number of other felony counts, including obstruction of justice, and I was facing 35 years in prison. And I knew in April of 2010 I would have to find some way, some way to influence the court of public opinion because I knew it would be a star chamber inside a, a federal courtroom. And I read this extraordinary op-ed by Justin Radak just a few days after I was indicted, and I said, she gets it. Yeah. And so she was my voice when I had none, because I was silenced by my own government. She fought for me with a fierceness of purpose and a fire of advocacy that made a huge difference in my defense against the government's uh, case against me. And ultimately, it was dropped, because she was the key in ultimately turning the tide in my favor. Ironically enough, in the court of public opinion, and even with the mainstream media, and why I was a real whistleblower. So she turned it all around, uh, that, that op-ed yeah, piece. Yeah, it was her stellar defense. Yeah. It was yeah. her unrelenting advocacy of me when no one else would stand up for me when it mattered. She was the only one who filed a friend of the court brief in my defense. The only one? No one else That's did. it? No only civil, one. No civil rights attorney? No, 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 no civil rights, no ACLU, nobody else. Wow. Nobody. Wow. wow. No That's senator, amazing. no a member of the House would touch it. Wow. You know, Tom, there's a, uh, I want to play this piece of music that kind of uh, 
Uh, oh, sure. Um, this is from the Flaming Something. Uh, you got that, uh, Frank, and maybe, uh, Tom, you can explain it uh, here. Oh, the Flaming Lips. All right, here we go. One, all right, one second. Here we go, sure. Frank. The name is Yoshima. She's a black belt in karate. Working for the city. She has to discipline her body. Because she knows that. All right, you know, for a guy who's into jazz and the classical music and Brazilian music, <laughs> I got to tell you something. That was something awfully new to me. Uh, so maybe you can tell us the significance of that music. Sure. It's a title track from their album, Ushimi Battles of Pink Robots. It, it was released in 2002. That was the year in which the public found out that she was blowing the whistle on what was the epigenesis of the torture regime under the Bush administration. And she ultimately resigned from the Department of Justice. So Yoshimi right, is... Je- we're talking about Jesselyn, right? Yeah. Yes. Jesselyn wow. was my Yoshimi, to say it that way. So yeah. she wasn't going to let the government power abusers defeat me. So it was a real fight, call to duty. And you know whether it's standing up to a bully or, as a flaming lips would have it, an army of rebellious androids bent on world domination, she <laughs> was there to help defeat those robots. Wow. Wow. You know, the government kept throwing my way with frame narratives, falsehoods, and character assassination, and she wasn't going to let them get away with it. Wow. Now, I, I wonder if she knows that tune, if I were to play that tune for her when she comes up in a few minutes. Uh, wow, that's great. Uh, you know, a lot of this people don't know, you know, what she's done quietly. She's done so, she's represented so many whistleblowers uh, over the last uh, 15 years, uh, 16, 18 years, and uh, she's a tiger. Uh, let's, let's, uh, we got to close up in a few minutes, Tom. I want to just sure. uh, uh, return uh, to uh, Assange. Uh, sure. what your last um, thoughts about uh, where do we go from here? What Are you optimistic? Uh, what do people have to do uh, to turn this around? And how significant is it? What are the implications? It's extraordinarily significant because if, the, if, he, if Assan is extradited and if he actually faces trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, Right, and if he, and if he ends up in prison for the rest of his life, um, I mean, it's it's unprecedented. I mean, because it means that now the government has the precedent, like they ultimately did, not with me, for everything they tried. They'll actually have they can point and say, "Hey, here's," and it's ch- uh, sending a chilling message to any other publisher. That means it's no different than the New York Times or the L.A. Times or the Washington Post. Wow. Because they're media as well. And so if you say something or you publish something that, quote-unquote, came from the secret, and I put that in air quotes, the secret side of government, 
we can go after you for you know prior restraint and prevent you from publishing. And if you publish it, we're going to p- prosecute you. Look, you already have cases on the book right now. You just have a, the newest one. Uh, Trump just this just the other day filed a libel suit, a defamation lawsuit um, against the Washington Post, his campaign, his 2020 campaign. Yeah. He wants to prosecute the press. I mean, this, this is weaponizing the First Amendment. He literally wants, he considers the First Amendment a direct wow. threat to his ability to exercise autocratic powers, because that's in fact what it is. So, and so, it's about time that all media wake up. They really. So they, I am encouraged by people realizing what, the, what the, the significance of this is. But a lot of the mainstream media are saying, well, he'll, they'll won't do it. they won't do it to me because that's WikiLeaks, right? And that was secret stuff, and that's national security. Look, there's all kinds of national security reporters in the United States with U.S. publications that routinely have communication with their sources, whether authorized or not, by the government and publish those secrets. Right. Right. So, so what's the difference, Randy? I don't know what the difference is, but uh, I, I, you're right about they should be circling the wagons rather than the firing squads. That's what I, Right, because it exposes them in terms of how significant, significant this is and the dangers of having a government say that if you publish what is truly and as clearly in the public interest and make it criminal, wow, we're in a whole... We're, that, what, and this is why democracy is under such, such direct attack. It's understandable in an autocracy that this would happen. History's not kind here. But to have those countries claiming to be democracies, yes. suppressing and censoring the news, that's truly Orwellian. Yeah, that's what's, that's what's happening here. Definitely what's happening here. That trial that's going on is a farce. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very ominous, uh, Tom, if they were to uh, be successful. But I guess the British, uh, the British Empire, as much as uh, the president slams them and ridicules them, uh, certainly are bending over backwards to do everything that he wants. And what, what, what's, what's the, uh, the reasoning for that, Tom, in a nutshell? They want to make an example of. Remember, even Obama chose not to go after WikiLeaks or Assange. Right. I, I they saw. only went after the the alleged whistleblower. Right. Yeah, they went after Chelsea. This Manning. is next level. But this was the great fear, Randy. The fear was of myself and the and the Jesses of the world and others. Okay, so Obama's a nice guy, inherited all that stuff. He was supposed to roll back the overreaches and the excesses of the Bush administration. What would happen if someone like Trump came along? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He's got all the power in the world. He's got the NDAA. He's got the Patriot Act. He's got a lot of of, uh, artillery there to go after just about all of us. Tom, Thomas Drake, uh, I salute you for your courage and and for your uh, advocacy and standing up. uh, And you're, you're really a true patriot of the highest order, man. You are, you are gold. As Julian Assange said before, you are gold, and uh, thank you. Well, look. No, you're welcome. I'm just standing on top, you know, at moral arc of the universe, helping bend it a little bit closer to justice, and as I like to add, mercy. What they're trying, the government's trying to hang us off of that long moral arc of the universe. Wow. I can't follow that 
I really can't follow that. That's uh, Thomas Drake, Tom, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much for giving us so much of your time today. Thomas Drake. Yeah, no problem. All right. We're, we're going to take a uh, quick break here, and when we come back, uh, we will have uh, Jesslyn Radak uh, joining uh, Ben Norton and I here at uh, nycpodcasting.com, uh, this edition of Assange Countdown to Freedom. In a white room with black curtains near the station. I'm Randy Credico. This is uh, Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. I'm here in the Lower East Side with Ben Norton from uh, Gray Zone News. Uh, and uh, I hope joining us right now is the great, great, great uh, whistleblower and attorney and advocate for whistleblowers, uh, Jesslyn Radak, who we were just talking about with Thomas Drake. Jesslyn, Hello. Hi, Randy. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, I, I know that, you know, you work uh, with this uh, WISPER. I didn't put put that out there, WISPER, which is a long acronym. Uh, with my vision, it's uh, Whistleblowers and Source Protection Program at Expose Facts. And that's where you are right now. And I had no idea some of the... Um, uh, work that you have done. I mean, I knew a lot of it, but Tom really laid it out, and uh, he credits you with basically saving his life. Uh, Tom is a remarkable, remarkable individual, is he not? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I feel that way about all of my clients. I've been very lucky to have such amazing um, people that I've represented, but part of that also speaks to the fact that the ones that the government is targeting with some of these most serious charges happen to be very bright, intelligent, often lifelong, you know, military and government employees who've spent their entire life trying to serve their country. Yeah, he has a flawless background. You take a look at Tom. He served his country uh, for for many years, and he and he served it at the end. He served the people. His you know, he took that oath, and you know, when he went public and, and exposed government wrongdoing, that was the right thing to do, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, the, I think there's some confusion evidenced by our current president that you owe him a duty of loyalty, but public servants, government employees take an oath to support and defend the Constitution, not whoever happens to be the current president of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and I think with all of these whistleblowers like Jeffrey Sterling and John Kiriakou, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, Daniel Hale, all of these people, including, you know, our reality winner, are, were trying to get information that was in the public interest out there, information that often evidenced um, crime by the government or secret programs that had not been approved publicly. Um, so I, all of these people have been very intelligent there and have a huge amount of integrity to do what they did. And they are all paying a very heavy price. Well, uh, Jocelyn Radak, um, I wanted to ask you um, about your fellow Sam Adams awardee with Julian Assange. Obviously, you, you've been an advocate for him for many years. Uh, long before I was involved in this, uh, and uh, I'm sure it's a, a really grave concern here. You've been watching uh, events unfold uh, in uh, London at uh, Belmore's uh, Majesty, Majesty's Court. Uh, what is your uh, your assessment of uh, of the proceedings uh, thus far? It's extremely concerning. Very few people have been able to actually get in to the proceeding. The courtroom can only hold a small number of people. There don't appear to be public transcripts. It seems very Kafkaesque. Now, I got to know Julian because he started reaching out and defending whistleblowers I was representing. I didn't know him at first other than he was supporting people that I was trying to defend. And that's how I ended up becoming friends with him. And he became an ally for me and so many other whistleblowers. Um, and now, you know, for a while, he was flavor of the week, flavor of the year. And now the pendulum politically seems to have swung in a different direction in this country. And he's being demonized. And I think they're going after Julian right now because they see him as not being politically as popular and they can create precedent with Julian, precedent of going after someone who is a publisher, which has not happened in our history. That would create horrendous precedent that would make any publisher vulnerable, including the publisher of the New York Times, the publisher of The Guardian, the publisher of The Washington Post. Um, it is an incredibly dangerous thing that's occurring. And arguably, they're going after Julian because he's politically unpopular right now. And he's controversial. And he's been smeared. And, you know, again, like in any of these cases, you're only hearing one side of it. Um, which is you know, largely the government's side of it and the side of people in positions of power. But he has been a groundbreaking journalist. Whatever you think of him on a personal level, 
he has completely moved the dial in terms of journalism, in terms of transparency, in terms of source protection, and in terms of news reporting in a digital era. We are talking yeah. with Jesslyn Raddick. Uh, this is Randy Credico, uh, live on the fly, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom, uh, being joined uh, here as my guest co-host. I can't handle these shows by myself, and that's <laughs> Ben Norton. Ben Norton, you have some questions for Jesslyn. Yeah, well, I get it. We're covering some heavy issues, so it's good to, to be able to have some backup here. Uh, Jesslyn, one of the questions I had is I agree with you 100% that this case involving Assange is absolutely terrifying in the implications, and not only the implications for press freedom. You know, I as a journalist am terrified by what this would mean if the U.S. can successfully extradite a foreign journalist. For me, what is even more Kafkaesque, I'm glad you used that term because it's exactly what's happening. What's even more Kafkaesque is the fact that Julian Assange is not a U.S. citizen. His work did not take place in the United States. I mean, many of the whistleblowers uh, you have, who have served as your clients and who you've defended and really defended not just them, but defended, you know, all of our rights as Americans to the freedom of speech and freedom of the press. But those were U.S. citizens, those cases. Can you comment on the fact that this case with Assange seems to be something on a whole new level in terms of authoritarianism because the U.S. government is trying to say that it can extradite a foreign national who, who has nothing to do with the U.S. and his only so-called crime is publishing truthful information. How is Julian Assange different from any other foreign journalist? And if they can successfully extradite him, does that not mean that the U.S. government can extradite any foreign journalist anywhere in the world for publishing information that it doesn't like? It does. And a corollary to what you just said is that it puts at risk all of our journalists who are in other countries that may have more repressive regimes. And you could see Iran or Iraq imprisoning an American journalist for violating their secrecy rules. And it, it, that is a level of chill, the chilling effect that this would put on the practice of journalism. And, you know, again, they're going after this with Assange because he's not as politically popular at the moment. But think of the peril that it puts our own journalists in. And reporting for any in any country that happens to have, I mean, reporting in Russia, reporting in Iran, reporting in Iraq, reporting in Saudi Arabia. I, I mean, it, it puts everyone at risk and it's it's just all the more absurd the fact that uh, that assange is australian by birth living in the uk and 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 we are trying him for violating our secrecy rules and we're trying him under the espionage act i mean it just it, it creates nightmare such overbroad precedent that could really be used to hurt journalists reporting and publishing um, all over the world because we're operating on a global scale now. Journalism is not just local newspaper. Journalism with thanks to the internet can with the push of a button go, you know, to any to almost any country when you post an article. So this is just so dangerous in terms of what it creates 
Um, and I think the I think the media, at least the editorial boards, all got together and came out you know, with a statement about how dangerous this is. But I have not seen any kind of consistent, uh, you know, media outlet beating the drum regularly for why we need to pay attention to this. Yeah, and what's so frustrating is most of these same editorial boards have demonized Assange and WikiLeaks relentlessly. They, they've taken, you know, the joke is always, if you help take the football to the 90-yard line, you can't complain that when people take it the next 10 yards. I mean, that that's how politics works. But all of these same media outlets that demonize Assange now suddenly are, are expressing concern that if he were to be extradited, it could actually imperil their own work. And, and that's absolutely terrifying. And another issue, Jessalyn, that interests me about this, you mentioned the Espionage Act. And for listeners who, who don't know that, you know, when it is mentioned in you in the U.S. news, which is frequently not, but when it is, what's almost never acknowledged is that this is World War One era legislation, and it was created to, to imprison people during World War One who were against the war. The whole point was to imprison anti-war activists, and we saw under Obama and and Bush Jr., we, but especially under Obama, we saw that Obama used the Espionage Act to go after, to try to imprison whistleblowers who leaked to journalists more than any other president combined. So, Jessalyn, I'm wondering, you began your work under George W. Bush with the beginning of the so-called War on Terror, and you've also been continuing your work through now three administrations, through Obama and now through Trump. How have you seen this issue carry over through, regardless of party, throughout all of these administrations where the government, led by the executive, is trying to imprison whistleblowers and journalists using World War I-era legislation? And do you think that under Trump it's gotten even worse than it was under Obama? Uh, yes, I think, uh, it, first of all, Obama hardly gets a pass. I like many things about Obama, but unfortunately, he unleashed a brutal war on whistleblowers. And it, I mean, before the last person who had seriously gone through this was Dan Ellsberg facing Espionage Act charges. And then this was dormant for, for, you know, 40 years. And then suddenly Obama resurrected it and went after more whistleblowers and sources than all presidents previously combined, which was really bizarre for uh, someone who was elected on a platform of transparency. And with Obama, I think towards the end of his administration, he started to pull back on that and realize the peril involved in it. We kind of saw Obama's thinking change a little bit, for example, with the commutation of Chelsea Manning, um, Chelsea's sentence. Um, but unfortunately, he put in place incredibly dangerous precedent. And throughout the Obama administration, we said, what would this power look like in the hands of someone we don't quote unquote trust and who's not a constitutional scholar? And sure enough, now we have Trump. And when he came into office, Jeff Sessions said, you know, his attorney general, you know, Jeff Sessions said, we are going, we have some, you know, two dozen open leak investigations, including ones that had, you know, been dying on the vine. 
And that's why we see a current, you know, Espionage Act prosecution against Daniel Hale, who, you know, blew the whistle on unlawful drone surveillance and targeting of innocent civilians. Um, It's just disastrous that this president now, I mean, when you have a president who's against leaks and you've created this kind of precedent, he, you know, he can use it on anyone and he can push the envelope, which clearly they're trying to do by going after someone extraterritorially in terms of Julian Assange and going after someone who's not a whistleblower, but rather someone who published disclosures by whistleblowers. And, and while I'm, you know, casting shame on this, a lot of the major news media outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post relied on leaks from WikiLeaks. Sometimes they co-published leaks that WikiLeaks had obtained. They partnered with WikiLeaks. So I definitely hope that they can be a little bit more vocal about what what this case can mean for them. Jessalyn Radak, we uh, only have a few minutes left. Um, I wanted to, uh, first of all, comment. Uh, you're the only person uh, from the Sam Adams uh, Association or from any uh, organization of, of that ilk uh, that I've seen on mainstream media. You were on one time in the last year. I played that clip, uh, part of it, uh, with Ari Melber, uh, you know, but they always have to condition it saying, well, we don't like the way he operates Assange. But, you know, they're treading too close to the entire uh, First Amendment. But they always have to condition it. But I was I was pleasantly surprised that you at least got on. And uh, you don't see, you're not asked a lot by the New York Times. Or is Thomas Drake uh, asked a lot uh, by the New York Times or, or from the Washington Post to comment on, on the Assange case? Uh, now, you've, you've operated, one question I wanted to get in here. Well, you've operated a lot in the Eastern District, which is the uh, bailiwick that is uh, right now prosecuting Julian Assange. Uh, tell us um, how ominous and uh, that uh, bailiwick is, uh, you know, what it uh, holds for Julian's future. The Eastern District of Virginia Virginia. is considered the most or one of the most conservative courts in the country. And it also has a nickname of being the rocket docket, meaning once you're in the system, cases are processed and occur a lot more quickly than in many other jurisdictions. Um, And for some reason, the majority of the Espionage Act cases that have transpired in the U.S. have all occurred in the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, which is kind of curious because, for example, the NSA is actually in Maryland. The CIA is in Virginia. But why Julian's case would be in Eastern District of Virginia as opposed to any other federal court at all um, to me, definitely kind of raised concern because, again, they seem to have kind of cornered the market, at least when it comes to these Espionage Act prosecutions. There are exceptions. Joshua Schulte's case is going on in New York and Reality Winner's case transpired in Georgia. But by and large, Eastern District of Virginia, um, you know, has cornered the market on these cases. And in fact, 
Jeremy Hammond and Chelsea Manning, you know, the, the peril that they're facing is currently in EDVA. Daniel Hill's case is scheduled for trial in June in EDVA. All these people are in the orbit of Julian Assange. That doesn't mean they are sources or that they conspired or that they participated, but they're all in that orbit of reporters, sources, people who are thought to be reporters and sources. So, you know, that's, that's my concern. I, you know, uh, he could be, if they're trying to extradite, technically he, you know, it could be on an indictment from any district court in the U.S., however bogus that may be. But the fact that it's in the EDVA uh, gives me even more pause that this is, um, you know, that this appears to be politicized. Yeah, yeah, Jessalyn, we do have to wrap up in a moment here, but one final question, just while we're talking about the the court in Virginia. This is this is a curious case. El País reported that the head of the Spanish cybersecurity firm, David Morales, and he, this is the firm that was spying on Assange on behalf of the CIA. El País, the Spanish newspaper, reported that this man was actually in March 2017 in Alexandria, Virginia, right by the federal court. And El Pais found this out by tracking down his IP address. And El Pais notes that Alexandria is home to the U.S. federal court that has been investigating the Australian cyber activist, of course, Assange, for years and has requested his extradition. So the question in my mind is, what could this Spanish former intelligence officer who was working with the CIA secretly, what could he have been doing in Alexandria, Virginia, by potentially in or at least near the court that is trying to extradite Julian Assange? Uh, testifying to a grand jury to try to get the indictment. I, you know, I... So much of this transpires in secrecy, we don't know, but, you know, EDVA is where all of this is going on. And so I would have to imagine to, you know, and again, a lot of this is secret, so I don't have like firsthand access to this information and none of us do, but it suggests that he was testifying, maybe not even publicly, either meeting with the government or providing testimony in a secret setting, for example, in a grand jury. Just it really is Kafka-esque. Yes, it is. Uh, we're going to play something from, we're going to play before we go, two minutes, not with you, Justin, but uh, later on, uh, a little piece from the trial with, uh, by uh, Orson by Welles. There's oh, yeah. a little, there's a two-minute uh, pastiche we're going to play. Uh, Jocelyn, um just one, uh, wanted to ask, uh, people get in trouble like uh, Tom Drake, uh, how do they reach uh, you? They can literally email me, Jess at exposedfacts.org. Thank you. Thank you. Keep up the great work, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Jesslyn Radak. Thank you so much. All right. We'll be uh, right. Uh, yes. Yes. Go ahead. Okay. So, no, that's it. I just wanted to say thank you for oh, having me. Thank you. And you were wonderful. Jesslyn Radak. Thank you very much. I'm Randy Credico. Uh, here with uh, Ben Norton from uh, the Great uh, Gray Zone. You know, this is like 
three of you guys, you, Aaron Mate <laughs> two weeks ago, and uh, Max Blumenthal from the Gray three Zone. Amigos. Hopefully not yes, the Three Stooges. Not the Three Stooges. <laughs> no, Three Amigos. You guys have been great. And uh, Gray Zone News. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be right back uh, in a minute with somebody, a very special reporter uh, from our um, uh, worker uh, with uh, Reporters Without Borders. In just one minute, we're going to play. I don't even know what we're playing, but it's uh, it's coming up right now. Oh, I know. It's by the it's by, uh, by uh, Neil Young's old group. All right, we'll be right back in uh, one and a half minutes with Rebecca Vincent. There's something happening here what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going being wrong Nobody's right If everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down All right. Well, we're back. I was uh, in uh, London at this uh, hearing, the extradition hearing uh, for Julian Assange in uh, Woolwick, Greenwich, whatever. Uh, and I met a lot of uh, very interesting people. One of the most interesting was Rebecca Vincent from uh, uh, Reporters Without Borders, who sat there uh, for four days, one day without me. I was there for three days. And uh, so she was. She's been around. She works her tush off uh, and has been very busy uh, filing reports. And uh, thank you for joining us from London, Rebecca. Oh, thanks for having me, Rebecca. Uh, that was quite a week, wasn't it? It was quite a week, and I have to say, I think you were one of the most interesting people in the queue. <laughs> <laughs> he always but, is. Um, tell yeah. us, tell us about that <laughs> that queue there. Uh, so people know what people had to go through. First of all, only so many people got in. To, it, it, explain it because you're pretty good with the language. Uh, what people had, what <laughs> others had to go through to get those 14 seats that were available. Oh my goodness! So yes, it was quite a week. So I think most mornings you were probably out there slightly earlier than uh, me, but I think the latest I got there all week was around six thirty. And if you got there much later at all, you had no chance of getting in, right? And um, it was cold. It's still cold here, but the last day was freezing rain. That was really particularly welcome. Um, but like there was uncertainty always about whether we would even get in, whether there would be the same number of spots day to day. Um, and then once we did get in, it wasn't managed very well. So just getting access into the court didn't actually guarantee that you would get the seat they intended for you in the public gallery because other people would come from other places and at each break when we left, we couldn't leave 
our belongings there. We couldn't save seats. So, you know, if there was even a 10 minute break, there was no guarantee that you would get back in. So by the end of the week, I was referring to it as a bit of a Darwinian musical chairs, because <laughs> if you were really determined to monitor, like you couldn't really even go for lunch properly. You, you know, you were kind of worried if you even needed a toilet break. So um, that's what we were dealing with for four days straight. It was a very long week. I remember that first day. I mean, when I found out that you and, uh, and, and your colleague from Berlin were there and you were like maybe not being able to get in and how important it was. It was so, I was, well, I better give up my seat. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I'm going to have to stand back because there were people pushing their way in. And when I heard Reporters Without Borders was there, not just you, but your, your friend from Berlin, I forgot his name, uh, but you did oh, get Christian, in. Christian, yeah. Christian, yes. And so um, what did you what did you witness? I mean, uh, you know, I've I've told what I witnessed. What was your overview of those four days? Well, so firstly, about why we were having to queue, you know, and fight for seats with the public gallery. That's something I want to address with the court for May, because we monitor trials in all sorts of countries. And I've never had so much difficulty getting in as an NGO observer. And it's because the court refused to accommodate NGO observers. We did write to the court ahead of time um, because we weren't there as journalists. We didn't have press cards. We, we were there as NGO observers. And um, the only solution given to us was, was to queue, you know, for the public gallery, which should also be open to others that have an interest in monitoring. So that was not ideal. And we hope that will be addressed for May. Um, but in terms of the hearing itself, um, it was really disturbing. Um, I, I think, you know, we weren't surprised by anything we heard from the US. Um, the case against him is outrageous. Um, we think it's very clear that he's being targeted for his contributions to public interest reporting. Um, and it's ludicrous really how far the U.S. is able to move while also admitting that they don't have evidence of this harm that they say that that Julian Assange created for anyone. Um, so, you know, and procedurally, it might not matter. And they, the U.K. may be able to extradite him anyway. But what we found that really, you know, damning is the sort of very clear lack of evidence, even in this early stage, just the legal argument stage, the lack of evidence that you, the U.S. has for, for the things that they're accusing him of doing. Um, and we thought the defense was really strong um, in that regard as well and sort of laid a very clear picture of, uh, the efforts that WikiLeaks had taken to redact the information and how publication was of the unredacted data set was somewhat out of their control and how uh, Mr. Assange had acted to try to, to mitigate the risk to sensitive sources in that. So, you know, that to me, the argument was very clear um, during that first week. The, the, uh, I wanted to ask you to describe the courtroom because there's been one picture that came out, a very blurry picture. Somebody took a photo the first day and, you know, you couldn't even tell it's him. But, but to kind of describe, you know, because we were up there uh, in like a gallery in the second floor looking down, uh, just paint a picture of what that scene was for people who did not get in there. Sure. Well, we were up in a in a, a glass box sort of at the top, a thick glass panel. So nobody in the courtroom could hear us. Um, people in the courtroom, if they looked up, could probably see those of us in the front row. There were two rows of chairs in the public gallery. Um, and then there was the well of the court itself, uh, which is how the judge refers to it anyways, the well of the court, so the main courtroom. Um, and in the middle, you have uh, the legal teams for both sides. Um, and then off to the side, uh, you have the press gallery, uh, so some members of the press were there and then others were accommodated in an overflow annex where they could follow but weren't actually in the courtroom. And then at the back of it all was Julian Assange himself. So he was held in a secure dock at the very back of the courtroom 
covered also by thick glass uh, partitions. There were gaps in the partition, so people in the courtroom could hear him a little bit if he tried to speak, but he was not miked because they did not intend for him to speak. And the few times that he did try to speak throughout the week, the judge very quickly silenced him and said that as he was well represented, he needed to speak through his lawyers. But the problem is he was trying to complain about uh, his inability to follow proceedings properly from that glass cage, what we've come to refer to as this glass cage, right? Um, he, uh, there were there were problems for all of us with the, you know, the the acoustic system. Like if, if any of the lawyers strayed from their microphones, we couldn't hear in the public gallery. Apparently, the, the overflow press gallery couldn't hear either. But Mr. Assange couldn't really follow his own hearing properly, not just um, sort of in terms of the acoustics, but it was hard for him to, to, to engage, to, to pay attention, and he could not easily speak to his legal team. So he complained about these things several times. Um, but I was also struck by the fact that he just really did not look well. Um, he looked a bit better on the first day than on subsequent days, but he was very pale, ashen even, I would say, um, clearly very tired, um, and clearly at, at times uh, struggling to focus on, on the proceedings. And on day two, his lawyers um, opened by actually reporting that he was being actively mistreated at Belmarsh prison as as the extradition hearing was ongoing. Yes. So between day one. Well, tell and us day about two, that. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they came in and complained. Tell us what they said. The lawyers about. Sure. So there was so on day two, it was a very specific set of allegations between like overnight from day one to day two. They said uh, that he had been strip searched twice, um, hands cuffed 11 times moved holding cells five times without real reason. And I assume that's why he looked so tired that day if he was moved around so often, unable to probably sleep properly that night. And also had his legally privileged uh, materials confiscated from him upon entering and exiting the prison. Um, So that was extremely disturbing. And I would expect it to be treated as a matter of uh, urgent concern, uh, especially in the United Kingdom, a country that is supposed to protect one's uh, rights under the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, but the judge simply stated that it wasn't within her jurisdiction um, and it didn't come back up as part of the formal you know, proceedings again. So I'm not sure where that landed, if the legal team uh, was planning to address it with the prison governor, but we're really concerned about how he may be treated now at Belmarsh Prison, because if that was happening when, you know, the world was watching what was going on in the court that was just adjacent to the prison, you know, premises, then I really I really would be concerned about what's happening when there's not so much scrutiny. We are talking with Rebecca Vincent, who is the UK Bureau Director for Reporters Without Borders. This is uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, joining me uh, is my uh, special uh, guest co-host, Mr. Ben Norton from Gray Zone News, and I know Ben has a couple of questions for you. Thanks, thanks for calling me special, sure. Randy. You are special, <laughs> um, for Rebecca. I well, the, the first comment I had just think uh, when I was listening to how you described the proceedings and specifically the long queue outside, that actually struck me as somewhat surprising, given how little media coverage this horrifying case got, at least in the U.S. I mean, fortunately, I think it has gotten coverage internationally, but, you know, uh, many corporate media outlets in the U.S. have to cover, they have to cover uh, Russia for the eight millionth time to, to get the, the, the latest update. But as for the Assange case, one of the things that also has struck me is an interview that Yanis Varoufakis did, the Greek politician on Australian media, ABC, following the court proceedings. 
And Janusz Varoufakis actually was able to meet with Assange and have a brief discussion with him from, from the high security prison. And Assange conveyed to Yanis Varoufakis that he really is not in good health, clearly physically, but also mentally. And Varoufakis emphasized that in his discussion with Assange, that Assange told him, frankly, I can't follow what's going on in this case. I can't properly defend myself. Also, Assange has said that he can't even talk privately with his lawyers because when he does have the opportunity to speak with his lawyers, which, as you've mentioned, he actually doesn't frequently have that opportunity, but when he rarely does, he actually is not alone with his lawyers. There are still still guards present right next to him, and, and Assange has said that he's not confident that the, the judges aren't conveying what he's saying privately to his lawyers. So in this broadcast here, Randy and I have been using the word Kafkaesque a lot. And it just it just strikes me how Kafkaesque this whole trial is, where it's very clear that from from the, the physical impediments, as in the glass case, that make Assange look like he's some kind of high-profile terrorist. I mean, I don't even... I remember mass murderers aren't even treated like this. So there are the physical impediments, and then there's also the mental and psychological impediments where the defendant says that he can't even follow his own case and represent himself in court. I mean, can you just comment on these proceedings? Because I don't, how is this a, a fair trial in any way? Well, of course. And so um, I, I didn't mention that one of the things that the, the judge addressed later in the week was uh, Assange's request to be allowed to leave the glass dock at the back and to sit in the main courtroom with his lawyers. That was addressed on day four. Um, and so it was- it On was day not four, as, as four on, days on, in. Of the, uh, yes, well, you know, it was brought up informally earlier in the week, but the defense made a formal application on day four. So it was the last substantive thing that was considered uh, before things wrapped up for the week. But they were really concerned about the three-week period uh, that evidence will be heard starting from the 18th of May. And the defense made the, the case that it's really crucial uh, for them to be able to, to represent Mr. Assange properly, that he's able to interact with them easily as witnesses are giving testimony. Um, and there were many other reasons, too, but that was one of the, the primary reasons is that, you know, that he cannot easily get people's attention from the very back. Even if he can send notes, he's not able to converse properly. And unless they go down into the cells underneath the courtroom, there's no privacy at all. It's much so the U.S. government could even hear like what he's discussing with his lawyers. So we were extremely disappointed that the judge uh, ruled against that. Um, uh, you know, she gave a, a series of reasons explaining why each each you know point that um, that the defense had raised in in favor of him sitting in the main courtroom. But I thought it was really striking that even the U.S. the prosecution did not object to the request. It seems really um, dehumanizing. I've used that word several times now, and it is dehumanizing. If you know, I, I, it was one of those things that as it was playing out, I could imagine how the European court may treat it one day if it goes that far, if it's, if it's hard in Strasbourg. But um, you're, you're exactly right. He was treated like a violent criminal. That court is usually for violent crimes. It's, you know, anything from rape to murder to, you know, terrorism. And he's being treated um, as a violent criminal when regardless of what anyone believes about the charges against him, he's certainly not a violent person. Um, and his broader treatment, too, absolutely. Um, I, it's worth mentioning that the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Meltzer, has put out some really damning reports um, after professionally assessing Mr. Assange. He's found uh, evidence of like long-standing psychological torture. 
Um, so, you know, we've mentioned the mistreatment that's going on at Belmont Prison or that was at least going on during the hearing last week, but, but it's alarming sort of the longer term impact of his years of arbitrary detention um, and now, you know, actively being detained at a high security prison. Um, and I've been really concerned as RSF's UK Bureau Director, because I interact a lot with the UK government here, that the UK government is not really taking this UN special procedure seriously, is not really um, reacting to what should be a matter of um, alarm and urgent concern is, you know, reports of uh, psychological torture of somebody within the United Kingdom. Um, and so all those things really have to be remembered in any consideration of this hearing and I, I you know a, a point that's been made about if he is extradited to the US will be that conditions will be even worse there so yeah I have to say I remember Anders Breivik's case very clearly this is a Norwegian Nazi terrorist who who murdered dozens of people in a massive massacre and he was treated with kids gloves compared to what Julian Assange is facing right now and and another Quick note, I, I'm going to cut to Randy in a second because we have to conclude here, but you mentioned uh, Nils Melzer, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. Also, The Lancet, which is a major medical journal, published an open letter from more than 100 doctors from 18 countries emphasizing that they too have witnessed signs of psychological torture that Julian Assange is suffering. So even medical professionals yeah. are speaking out. Well, Nils, we did a 40-minute interview with uh, Nils a couple weeks back, and you can listen uh, to that. I spoke to him last night, uh, and he'll be coming back on the next couple of weeks. Uh, but to go back to our archives, a few weeks back we had Nils on laying it all out. Uh, uh, finally, uh, Rebecca, uh, how important is this case to Reporters Without Borders? It's extremely important. Um, it will be very alarmingly precedent-setting, not just for journalism and press freedom, but for broader issues of human rights, um, and not just in the UK and the US, but internationally. Um, even his treatment so far, uh, even if he's not extradited and persecuted in the United States, even his treatment so far has been intended, I think, to make an example of him, it will have a chilling effect on uh, potential other leakers and whistleblowers. And if he is convicted in the United States under the Espionage Act, um, it will be the first time a publisher has been convicted in such a manner. And that will have an enormous chilling effect. It will be a big deterrent on media, not just in the United States, but internationally, publishing leaked information. That's what that's about. That's why he's being treated in this way. It is intended to send a very clear message. And I think we have to respond very clearly as, you know, the freedom of expression community, um, journalists, everybody should be rallying behind him, regardless of what they may or may not know or think they know about him or whether they like him as a person or any of that. It's about the principles here. And um, it should be a matter of grave concern uh, to to anyone who cares about freedom and human rights and, you know, basic decency. Thank you. Um, Rebecca, Vincent, uh, how do people, I, I think people should support uh, Reporters Without Borders. How do people uh, reach out and uh, contribute or just find you and, and the whole group? Um, so our website, we're, we're known internationally as Reporters Sans Frontieres. So our website is www.rsf.org backslash Ian for the English version. So all of the things that we've put out on uh, this case and on, you know, other press freedom issues in the US, UK and internationally are there. And we still have an active petition uh, calling for the UK 
not to extradite Mr. Assange. So supporters can sign that petition. That would be very welcome. And continue to follow us. We'll be back in May. I'll see you there. I'll see you there. Yes. All right. (laughs) I'm going to bring a microphone. I'm going to bring a microphone and sing by the tents over there. Okay. All right. (laughs) Looking forward to Rebecca Vincent, thank you very much. Reporters Without Borders from the UK. And she is the special... uh, Bureau Director uh, for Reporters Without Borders. We'll be back with you uh, in the coming weeks. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thank, thank you. And Thanks we'll, a lot. Bye. All right. All right. We'll be right back. we got a big election coming up, and it looks like it's 68 all over again. We'll be right back with uh, Robert Boyle. So your brother's bound and gagged, and they've chained him to a chair. Won't you please come to Chicago just to sing? That's uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, 1968, uh, 69. It was all about uh, Chicago, um, and uh, Bill Kunstler was there. I think Bob Boyle may have been there. Bob Boyle is a uh, civil rights and uh, criminal defense attorney. He has been involved in uh, numerous cases involving and rep- repression of uh, political activists. Right now, he his name came up. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I'm sitting there during the trial of Assange, and uh, the defense attorney says, we're going to present some evidence or uh, some kind of memo or something from Robert Boyle. I said, it could only be one Robert Boyle. That's you, Bob. Right? That was me, yes. And that is me. That is you. And I was only 13, I was only 13 in 1968. So, oh, well, I was 14, um, all right? But you were, you were protesting back then, weren't you, the war? Oh, ab- absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Started so, early. So, anyway, this is, uh, your, this is Assange's countdown to freedom. We are talking to Robert Boyle. Robert, I, I, I was really, like, so pleasantly surprised when I heard your name uh, in the— I don't know if you're able to talk about it, but uh, what is exactly your involvement in this extrad- extradition proceeding? Well, Yes, it's and and I can talk about it. The the attorneys for Mr. Assange uh, approached me about writing a report on the um, grand jury system here in the United States and its abuse, and using the the case of Chelsea Manning as an illustration and how that might affect the uh, fairness of the proceedings should. Uh, Julian Assange be extradited back to the U.S. and and face a trial. So that was um, the reason they contacted me. I had been uh, 
uh, the staff attorney at the National Lawyers Guild uh, Grand Jury Project many years ago, but have uh, worked since then as a consultant in particularly when uh, political activists are subpoenaed to testify before grand jury. So, so uh, you're uh, right now, uh, somehow you're, it, it's, it involves the grand jury in, in the indictment of uh, Julian Assange. Can you, can you with your, your knowledge uh, of, I mean, I've been before a grand jury, but you know, I kind of forgot what it was like already. I've tried to forget, and I don't know how these proceedings start and how they end. Can you give us a little uh, overview of how these proceedings start and, and how they're manipulated and all that? Sure, and I'll use, I'll use Chelsea's case okay, again good. as an illustration. Um, as, as many of your listeners know, Chelsea is, uh, has been now incarcerated for almost a year for refusing to testify in a grand jury that returned the indictment against Julian Assange back down in the um, northern part of Virginia. And um, she has been held in contempt and will remain in contempt uh, until 18 months passes or she changes her position and agrees to testify. Um, essentially, the, a grand jury can subpoena anyone for any reason. And to say that it's the grand jury, which does technically issue the subpoena, is really a falsehood because as is recognized by most federal judges, the grand jury is an arm of the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's the U.S. Attorney's Office that decides who will be subpoenaed. It's the U.S. Attorney's Office who decides what the nature of the questioning is. And it's the U.S. Attorney's Office that essentially determines um, proceeds to a court to hold someone in contempt who refuses to testify. Now, in the case of, uh, of, of Chelsea Manning and how it relates to Assange's trial, the purpose of the grand jury, which, which is in the Constitution, uh, the Constitution says, amongst other things, no, no one can answer uh, for an infamous crime, which is a felony, without being indicted by the grand jury. So it was designed as a protection for citizens not to be, for citizens, not just citizens, obviously, any individual not to be brought before a court unless there's a determination of sufficient evidence. So it's an investigatory tool. It is a um, tool to bring someone before the court. But once an indictment has been returned, as is in the case of Julian Assange, there is no need to be proceeding with a grand jury investigation. So essentially what the government is doing here is using, the, and that this is just one of the arguments, and it comes up not only in Chelsea's case, but in many, many cases of grand jury abuse. They're using the grand jury to prepare for trial, to do their own preparation for trial. So they want to they interrogate Chelsea about because they assume whether i mean i don't know whether she will be a defense witness at trial but they don't they're, they're trying to pressure her into changing her testimony her her statement and you have to remember in her court-martial proceeding she gave a sworn statement admitting what she did and saying she did it a lot said saying she did it alone um and they want her to change that I see. And they're also, I think, 
very upset that Barack Obama uh, gave Chelsea clemency from from her, I think, 45 or 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 50 year sentence in a court martial. And so um, this new crew down there in Washington likes it very much that you know now she's now she's in jail. Um, so they want to, to bring her before the grand jury to pepper her with questions to try to get her to change her story. And another thing the grand jury can be used for in terms of a witness is it has the potential for being a perjury trap. Because let's look at it like this. Chelsea gave this long 50-page statement in her court-martial proceeding describing what she did and didn't do. Now the U.S. attorney wants to put her in the grand jury, ask her about the same things, and there's the potential, of course, that she might innocently say something different because she's been in jail, she's under horrible conditions, and sometimes your memory falters. And then they can say, well, look, Chelsea Manning just committed perjury and charge her with perjury and keep her in prison even longer. So what we did in... Um, which we're trying to to illustrate and the reason I was asked to do a report is that um, the US government the prosecution is is dealing unfairly here they're using a grand jury for something that it's not designed to be uh, and is um, um, and when and we hope never uh, mr. Assange is brought back here and tries to um, challenge what was done in the grand jury to Chelsea. If he's brought you know, back. The law is pretty yes. bad. Yeah, the law is, yeah, if, if of course. Uh, the law is so bad that um, the government will get away with it. And that's what I think the, the attorneys in the UK are trying to show uh, and what was in the nature of the report. We're talking with civil rights attorney Robert Boyle, who's been in the struggle for decades. I've known you for a long time. Uh, this is Assange Countdown to Freedom. I'm joined uh, with my this week's guest host, uh, uh, Ben Norton from Gray Zone News. Ben, I think you have a question or two for Robert. Yeah. Hey, Bob, one of the things you said really just, just surprises me so much that if it is legal, I don't understand how it can be legal. And that's that Essentially, my understanding is that the Trump administration, at least the justice system, uh, and and I've heard that the court that is overseeing these proceedings in Virginia is is a pretty right wing court. They're essentially holding Chelsea Manning hostage and saying that if you don't testify before this grand jury, we're going to keep you in jail. And I've also seen from Chelsea Manning's support team that. It's she's being fined, I believe, ten thousand dollars per day, many thousands of dollars. How is that legal? Because what, under what rationale is she being jailed after having committed no crime? Because she she was pardoned by Obama. How is she being jailed? And how can they just keep holding her until she agrees to testify? And of course, like you said, the strategy is to get her to say something to perjure herself. How is that legal? Is it legal? Yes, it's legal. Um, there's a statute which defines what civil contempt is, which is the refusal to obey a lawful court order to testify. And the and someone can be incarcerated in the grand jury situation 
for the life of the grand jury, which is a term of the grand jury. They normally have 18-month terms or until you agree to comply with the court order. And only a minimum of due process is required because it's deemed a civil penalty, not a criminal penalty, even though you're in jail. I know I have to laugh, but that's the, that's the, legal, that's the legal fiction. And the courts just said, always say, well, if Chelsea doesn't want to be in jail anymore, all she has to do is testify and she'll get let out. And so, yes, the Supreme Court has said this procedure is, is constitutional. And, um, uh, you know, many, you know, there's a long history in this country of the use of the grand jury to target political activists, the Puerto Rican independence movement, um, in the, the anti-Vietnam War movement and other situations, it was used in, in that manner. So, yes, it is legal. Well, Bob Boyle, we're at the, uh, at the end here. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. I, I think that uh, they couldn't find a better person who's an expert on uh, grand juries uh, and uh, your knowledge and your, your great work over the years is certainly appreciated. Uh, any uh, final just, thoughts? Any final thoughts about the whole uh, process that's going on in, in London? Well, I, w- I would just say um, I know from, from Chelsea Manning's lawyers that uh, she goes to court on the 13th of this month on a motion to be released, with the argument being that it's clear that she will never cooperate. So therefore, to keep her incarcerated is really a punishment. It's not acting anymore as, as, a, coer- as a coercive tool. So I encourage people who are listening to... Um, to be aware of what happens in court down in Virginia on March 13th. And we certainly hope that uh, Chelsea will be free. Well, we all do uh, hope so. That's March 13th. Uh, Bob Boyle, just any, any final thoughts? Uh, then we're going to have to run about the entire uh, charade that's going on in uh, London. Well, you know, we, we, we hope for the best for both, for both Chelsea and Julian Assange. And we hope that, the, the jurists in the UK and whoever Chelsea gets in Virginia will have a conscience and a sense of justice so that justice can be can hopefully be served. Thank you. The great words of Bob Boyle, Robert Boyle. Thank you very much. We'll be back with you in the coming weeks. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you, Robert Boyle. All right, we'll be right back with some closing thoughts, uh, Ben and I, and, uh, and that'll be it. Old pirates, yes, they rob I Sold I to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs 
ourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Okay, Bob Marley um, Redemption song. Uh, I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico Live on the Fly, uh, Assange's Countdown to Freedom. This is our 10th episode this year in collaboration with Covert Action Magazine. And I'm uh, here with uh, Ben. Thank you for coming in. This has been uh, really, you've been very helpful <laughs> today because we had a lot on our plate. You know, Ben Norton is, uh, is with Gray Zone News. Uh, you've done some incredible work, man, uh, there. And it must be a, a good place. Uh, to be to be uh, operating out of you've been all you've been in Venezuela. I mean, you really cover the planet, man. Seriously. And I gotta say, one of the unfortunate things is we feel like we have a lot of pressure on us because so many other progressive media outlets have really dropped the ball on a lot of issues, especially in Latin America. So yeah. I appreciate well, you, it. I mean, appreciate it. It's, it's a lot of work. You've done really. I, I mean, I saw you guys in Venezuela. It was incredible the four of you from uh gray zone uh, exactly. aaron mate you guys do incredible work and just in general you know max you guys are like firebrands and it's good <laughs> to try see. to be it's Always really good trouble, to see. but we so try to be. this is um uh we'll be back next week i this is nycpodcasting.com nycpodcasting.com i i can't tell you how much i appreciate uh frank uh frank's uh engineering and producing this show uh, it just would be impossible without him i want to thank anonymous scandinavia for putting together those clips and um i want to thank sarah kunstler i finally you know i i've been doing this I'm the only person in the world that doesn't have a Patreon button. And today she put one together for me because, you know, we're, we're basically, we've got a lot of work. We want to do this two or three days a week. And you can find it at Live on the Fly, Randy, Critical Randy, uh, this Patreon button. But, you know, I, I'm too squeamish asking for money. You know yeah, what I mean? I, I've never been able to do that. Um, but I'm more I'll of an it. activist. Hey, listeners, give your money. Give your money to Randy Credico. I want to. Th- I want to thank uh, <laughs> everybody out there. Um, I want to thank the the protests every Thursday. Remember at 4:30 in front of um, uh, Grand Central, you meet inside at the clock there. And to all you grunts out there and activists and vig- and and uh, vigil people. Uh, around the world, you are really important and significant. And without you, we we definitely need the ground movement, and you're providing it. So uh, that's exactly right. Really, I bless all you guys. God, I don't. I'm an atheist, but God bless all you people out there for doing that. If you go to a vigil, does that make you a vigilante? Yeah, yes, I think so. They are vigilantes. <laughs> now I just want to run. So, I especially the ones in London have been really wonderful. Yeah, Emmy, amazing. Emmy and Amna and all these people that get out there. Um, uh, and um, 
we'll talk about them more next week. Uh, I just want to make one last note. Max has been doing work on Nicaragua. I spent a lot of time in Nicaragua in the 80s. I did shows for Ortega. I did shows for Thomas Borges. I did, I did my show every Thursday at 7 o'clock in the morning in front of Pro Sandinista Internationalists. And one person I met at the Olaf Palme Center was uh, uh, Father Ernesto Cardinal who passed away at age 93, 94 uh, last week. And he was the spiritual leader of the Sandinista movement and a great Trappist monk. And uh, he really inspired a lot of people. So we're going to go out uh, uh, with this music. And we're thinking of you wherever you are, uh, Father uh, Cardinal. Hasta la victoria siempre. Sí. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Thank you. See you next week. Patria Libre! Patria Libre! Patria o Muerte! Los mártires y héroes con caudalosos ríos de ley.